Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today's episode is brought to you in partnership with Athletic Greens. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now, I literally can't miss a day. It's the first thing I put in my body every single morning. As someone who suffers from IBS, AG1 has completely improved my gut health and allows me to have sustained energy throughout the day. And since I'm always on the go, the travel packs make it so easy to stay consistent wherever I am. Love it. I've personally been taking AG1 for a while. And as someone who lacked a multivitamin routine, AG1 has been the perfect product to mix into my morning routine. Truthfully, I was a skeptic at first as I'm with most supplements and vitamins, but I've felt noticeably better at the start of morning workouts and definitely have seen an improvement in my digestive health. I tend to mix my AG1 with two tablespoons of lemon juice and coconut water, and it's delicious. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash STW. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash STW to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Paul Vogie, co-founder and CEO of Ourobora. Ourobora is a sparkling water made from herbs, fruits, and flowers for earthly tastes and heavenly feelings. Their products feature innovative flavors, differentiated ingredients, and wild, whimsical branding. This is a super fun conversation that just might leave you feeling extra thirsty. Paul, welcome to Subscribing to Wellness. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining. Um, I'm sure listeners will probably hear this in a month or two, but huge congratulations on just closing an amazing round of capital. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, it yeah. Uh, was a bit of a slog, but we we're glad to get it done. Of course. I'm sure it's refreshing now to, to try to get back to being 100% focused on the business, but wanted to take a step back. I've, I've heard you speak on several other podcasts and obviously I've had some other conversations with you. Want to just open up and hear about how you got the idea for Ourobora um, and what made you ambitious enough to take on the competitive beverage industry? Yeah, well, uh, one, I don't know if ambition had anything to do with it. I didn't know what <laughs> I was getting into. So it was probably more uh, being ignorant than anything. But um, no, I, I started, I, I grew up in a home uh, with a uh, mother that did not let us drink soda. So I was never hooked on soda. So I was, uh, we were weird little kids that drank a lot of sparkling water already. And then in my first couple of jobs out of college, um, I was just drinking 10 to 11 cans of LaCroix every day. We had one of those fully stocked office pantries with kettle potato chips and Justin's peanut butter and Jenny's ice cream and LaCroix sparkling water. My co-founder and wife, Maddie, grew up in a very similar kind of Whole foods e household. Um, so was also drinking sparkling water, not as many cans, but still a few. 
And it struck us as kind of odd that the most popular thing in those office pantries was sparkling water by velocity, like the most units were being consumed of it, but it was the least popular in terms of enjoyment. So we're all drinking it, but none of us are liking it. Um, and that felt odd. What if, what if instead we could make a similar uh, craft sparkling water in a commoditized category, which is why I named Kettle or Justin's or Jenny's, you know, ice cream, potato chips, and peanut butter were all at one point also thought of very commoditized categories where no one really had a brand they loved or was their favorite. Um, and all three of those businesses did a great job of elbowing out some space to show that, no, you can build a really distinctive brand in a busy category if you have differentiated flavors, better ingredients, and a brand with a distinctive voice. So that was kind of our recipe for success. We didn't build the playbook at all, trying to follow in those footsteps. Love it. Um, yeah, I have actually a really similar upbringing. Like I, my parents never allowed me to drink soda. And it was this weird thing. I, I'm going to even take it a step further. Like for a while, I, I just had never had carbonated beverages at all because soda right. was like the most common carbonated beverage. So I remember right. like the first time I even tried a carbonated beverage, I like found like the sensation to be super weird. And then yeah, over, yeah. Time, <laughs> over time I kept drinking carbonated beverages and obviously now I love Ouroboros and then there's, there's plenty others, but yeah, that's uh that's something we have in common. Um, I guess my, my first kind of question to like, just talk about the origins of the business. Like, how did you get started? I remember hearing stories about kind of your first trade show, crazy story about how you got into Whole Foods, but like, what did you do just to get your feet off the ground? Yeah, I, I didn't know this industry um, at all. Um, and now I still feel like I'm, I'm learning it a few years in, but I, I read a couple of books that were really helpful, both by beverage founders that are well known. Mark Rampolo, the founder of Zico Coconut Water, uh, wrote a book called High Hanging Fruit. And then Seth Goldman, the founder of Honest Tea, and actually now newly minted, the founder of Just Iced Tea, um, wrote a book about starting, scaling, and selling Honest Tea. So I read both of those books. In fact, actually the second one, the Seth Goldman one's a comic book. So if you're listening to this, you can read it in an afternoon. It's amazing. Um, those were super helpful. I think I read them both a few times each to kind of get started. But from there, I was just kind of off to the races. So uh, we... We were living outside of Boulder, Colorado, which I now know is like saying you want to be a stunt double and you live in West Hollywood. At the time, I didn't know that. So I was just, I just happened to live outside of Boulder. That's where we were living at the time. And everyone I ran into was really helpful of, hey, I can help you find a food scientist. We can help you find a guy that sells cans. We can help you find a co-packer. We can help you find a lavender person. Um, and I just thought, wow, this, this entrepreneurship thing is really easy. Like everyone's so helpful. Now I realize, of course, the ecosystem of natural products in Boulder is extremely well known, it, almost the hub of natural products. Um, so for us, that was our start. We had a small um, co-packer in Boulder. I went to this trade show in Boulder, actually almost exactly three years ago in October of 2019. And we did our first production run that morning. Um, it was such a small run. It was actually like, I remember we, we had this tiny little canning line and to actually seal the cans as myself in this, I think at the time he was probably 16 year old named Colin. So thank you to Colin. Um, and we made a thousand cans and I drove to, uh, naturally boulders showcase that night actually Hoplark won their pitch slam. Um, so Dean and Andrew at hop tea have been friends ever since. Um, but we were just in this gymnasium with 15 other products and boulder folks were coming by and trying it. And I, I had heard that the local forager for the Rocky mountain region would be there. She didn't stop by our booth. I thought I spotted her, you know, the, the forgers are always kind of, uh, cheeky with their name tags. They don't want you to know who they are. So the next morning I drove a case of product and left it on her desk. Luckily the guy behind the front desk said, Hey, 
um, did she ask you to bring the product? And I just replied, you know, yeah, she was, she was at the trade show I was at yesterday in Boulder. And luckily he was like, oh, okay. So you were naturally Boulder. And I was like, yep, yeah, we were there. And he said, great. And she asked you to bring samples. And I was like, yep, she was there and, and tried some samples. So it's a bit of a white lie to just get the samples under her desk and wrote her an email. And thankfully trade shows are so crazy. Either she thought she met me or we had some sort of miscommunication where she felt like, oh gosh, he must be right. We must've met. And she said, thanks for bringing the samples and tried them. And a few weeks later wrote back and said, uh, I think we can get you into our set in, in 2020. So that was our first big retailer. Every small retailer in between then and the actual launch at Whole Foods were just Bay Area local spots that I drove to um, and was learning what's a natural channel store, what's a convenience store, what's a conventional store. I didn't even have the idea of channels of trade. So that's a rambling explanation to say we got started in probably the most humble of ways. That's that's an amazing story. Um, Boulder really is this amazing mecca that I feel like in some cases flies under the radar, but just is such... First of all, amazingly beautiful, but then also it's just like this hub for natural products. It's oh, like, totally. Yeah. Like yeah, It's yeah. like, obviously like Southern California is a hub, but Boulder doesn't get enough credit. A lot of great entrepreneurship over there. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so I guess just kind of taking a step back, you talked about that first production run with that first co-man. Yeah. How do you approach, I mean, in a way you're always selling yourself, you're selling yourself to investors, you're selling yourself into retailers. But one of the first steps as an entrepreneur, right, is selling yourself to your co-man and really trying to convince them to take that opportunity on you for such a low unit volume. How did you approach that conversation? I guess, like, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs who may be trying to find that right partner for their first production run? Gosh, it's so hard. You know, it's a total chicken and egg problem of you need a, a co-man to make your product. Um, I, 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 I guess I'll say this. Any, there are a few categories where you can make the product yourself for a long time. So I'm always jealous of those folks of like, oh man, that sounds amazing. Um, you don't, you can like scale yourself until you're actually at the MOQs of a, a great co-man. For beverage, that's not really an option. I know some folks that have internal kind of their, their own uh, production, but not very many. So for us, I, I remember that first conversation was kind of laying out a plan of, of course, you know, come and don't make money on new products. They make money on their old products that they just churn out every six weeks doing production runs for. So you have to kind of convince the co-man like, hey, eventually you're going to make money on me and here's why. What was so helpful for us was, you know, in between that first run and that second run, we had gotten the authorization letter from Whole Foods. So I was able to convince them like, hey, eventually there's going to be some serious volume here, i.e., you know, I can stop being a net loss and start being a, a profitable vendor for you or customer for you. Um, but at the beginning, you kind of need to sell, to your point, it's selling, like sell them on the vision for the brand more than anything. Um, we had certain things going for us that, yeah, it was a sparkling water, so it was easier to produce. It wasn't going to be as costly. It wasn't going to be as time consuming for his team. Um, all those things can help. I, I would say just wear the vendor's shoes of, hey, how will they possibly make a profit off of you? should be of utmost importance to you, the customer, as much as it is to him. And then if you both feel like you're making money off of this arrangement, then you can work together in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like selling in like a realistic scale kind of sure. that is backed by actual like retail acceptances. And yep. then I guess just being prepared with the <laughs> capital to support those exactly. and retail acceptances up front instead of kind of going in without capital, getting the acceptance, getting the co on board, and then having to scramble to find capital. Totally. Oh, I, I've talked to so many entrepreneurs where it feels like the 
it feels like in their mind, what they're saying is how do I screw over all my vendors as I work my way up the, the supply chain scale? And the question should be like, how do I have that vendor think like, oh, wow, you know, or Bora or insert company name here was my best client. Yes, they eventually outgrew me and moved on, but they paid on time and they were thoughtful of my, you know, needs as a co-man, et cetera. This is even true with retailers of when you talk to buyers, rather than thinking, hey, how do I get a fourth or a fifth or a sixth skew under your shelf? The question should be like, how do I get a few more pennies in that buyer's pocket? And then you're both on the same team all of a sudden. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, the other thing I wanted to just go into kind of transitioning more now to where Ouroboros is and how you've kind of thought about differentiating the product is just how you kind of think of the beverage landscape. Obviously, you have tremendous respect for for some of the other competitors that have been in the space, whether that's Spindrift. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know Sanzo well, and, and yeah. it's just constantly an evolving um, space with tons of innovation and competition. How have you thought about telling the Ouroboros story, driving differentiation, making sure you're competitive with price point, the unique kind of can configuration, all the things you're doing to really make Ouroboros stand out? So a few things. One, um, one of our investors and board members, Clayton Christopher, who is like just a, a legend in the beverage world. He started- the Waterloo, the Waterloo King, right? Yes, yes. He started Sweet Leaf Tea, then Deep Eddie Vodka, Waterloo Sparkling Water. So he has, he's on a, a beverage Mount Rushmore somewhere. Um, he loves to say like, hey, sparkling water is a very promiscuous category, um, which is a funny way of saying that th there can be room for many winners. So you're absolutely right. Like between- you know, I was joke like if the police showed up right now in front of my house, I would know they're taking me away for stealing Topo Chico and Spindrift data. Um, the reason I'm saying that is like they did an amazing job building premium sparkling water businesses where consumers are paying sometimes two times, three times as much as they would for a similar private label product. So there is an old guard of sparkling LaCroix, Polar, um, San Pellegrino, Perrier. Some of these companies have been around for a century Topo Chico included before it was bought by Coke. Um, Spindrift more recently, yeah, in the last 15 years, but um, Bill Krillman built an amazing business. I'd be thrilled to build half as great a brand as he built. Um, and then of course, yes, there are other competitors that are of similar age to us. Sanzo may be the most notable example. Um, and I've, I've been pretty stringent amongst our team as well. Of like, hey, I'm never going to say a negative thing about another sparkling water company. It'd be like making fun of, you know, guys in San Francisco named Paul, they'd be like making fun of myself. Um, why would I ever, you know, talk trash about another sparkling water business? So no, I, I think there's room for many winners. The category is growing uh, really fast. You know, the rising tides lifts all, all boats. And by that, I mean, hey, soon everyone will be coming to sparkling water. I always reference this, so forgive me if you've heard this, say this elsewhere, but my, my father, um, he worked at a grocery store starting at seven years old. He actually, he stole his older brother's uh, library card so that he could get the job as if he was 10, but he was only seven. So there's a great picture of my father in like an oversized apron at this grocery store in Iowa. Um, and behind him, he's in the soda aisle. There are like six brands of orange soda behind him on the shelf. And I love the, the picture because that's not that many years ago. Today, there is no grocery store in America that has six brands of orange soda. So all that shelf space is going to better for you drinks, a lot of which are sparkling water. As you strip sugar out of soda, what you're left with is a sparkling water. So as a result, I just know in a few years from now, you can ask someone what their favorite sparkling water is, and they will probably ask you to qualify it. Do you mean my favorite European import brand, my favorite craft brand, my favorite juice infused brand, uh, my favorite one with you know Asian inspired flavors? Like I hope that they ask for a qualifier because it becomes such a large category. And 
most of us can win um, is kind of how we've thought about it. Yeah, hundred percent. That that's a great point. And I mean, if you think about it, there's been a couple generations of just like a couple big beverages in the space being bought out for very big exit values by strategics. Right. Whether that, you know, you start off kind of with buy, and then eventually you get over to wa- the Waterloo. And um, you know, I'm sure Spindrift is on his way. And now we have this next generation with you, with Sanzo, even with Lemon Perfect when we go outside of carbonated. So seems like you're right like there continues to be winners in every few years and there, there's a lot of room to continue winning in the space um just doubling down on Ourobora, unique can format unique flavors um accessible price point while still being very close to bottom line profitability um and obviously an obsessiveness obsessiveness with retail execution like i've heard stories of you visiting stores pretty persistently yeah, um, for sure. How would you describe kind of what Ourobor is doing compared to some of the other competitors that you had just referenced? What, what do I think we're doing differently? Yeah. I would say, um, and, and this is clear to anyone that's like seen our cans, you know, I, I just referenced that with uh, how I thought Kettle, Potato Chips or Jenny's Ice Cream or Justin's Peanut Butter built distinctive brands. I'll talk about that again. Like one, yeah, we're trying to use different ingredients and have different flavors and have a different brand voice. So that's clear from the get-go. Hopefully you notice, okay, there aren't any other lavender, cucumber, sparkling waters out there, or you've never had a cactus rose sparkling water outside of Ourobora. That's helpful. Um, We don't use citric acid. We have a totally clean ingredient panel on the back. I think there are a lot of new drinks that but this is not me knocking any new drinks that use artificial sweeteners, but we're not a fan of any sort of sweetener. I, I'd like to just not drink sweeteners in general. Um, for our brand voice, you know, sparkling water is a pretty boring category. Like uh, Dogfish Head and Sam Adams did this with beer, where beer was like sold as a commodity. And they thought, what if the can was as fun as the ingredients inside? Same idea here of, okay. What if we build out this crazy brand world where sloths, you know, row cucumber canoes down rivers of Ourobora? Um, and hopefully you can think, wow, this is kind of peculiar, but delightful, which we hope that's what you're thinking when you're looking at the, the packaging. And then when you buy it, we hope that's what you're thinking when you taste the product. So I guess I would say using different ingredients that are unusual to the category, using different flavors that are unlike a lot of old school competitors and using a different brand voice and different packaging, uh, website, et cetera, copy to make consumers know that, hey, this is uh, a marked difference from what you're probably used to buying in the sparkling water aisle. Sure. And when, I guess just one more strategic question. Um, When you think about skew count, line extensions, new flavors. Um, I've been told by a lot of people, like when you first introduce a product, you might not want to go too far above three different variants because it's hard to get so many SKUs accepted by like one specific retailer. Mm -hmm. And so I guess my question to you, like how do you think through that kind of strategy is like, do you have a magic number in your head where you're like, well, I'll only ever have six SKUs at once before it just starts to become cannibalistic or you know, you talked about kind of testing LTOs digitally that might replace the flavor or add on to the portfolio. Like, is there a number that that is just too many SKUs to have at a certain stage within the company's growth? Or like, how do you balance all of this, you know, interest and innovation, but also trying to reel it in and stay focused on like a core set? Yeah, great, great point. So one, I'd say for anyone starting a new product, um, whether it's a cookie or a candy bar or a beverage or a soup, like 
you're, you're probably right. Three is kind of the magic number. We were told like, Hey, you should probably start with three or four SKUs. And I was asking every beverage founder who I knew in Boulder at that point. And I just couldn't think of one to cut. So we started with five kind of stubbornly, which probably was a mistake to be honest. Um, for us, I would say we've had a very interesting year in that, um, we, we started about a year ago doing these every other month, limited time flavors on our website. We had a huge boost in online customers as a result of just total dumb luck. We got on the show Shark Tank, got us a bunch of email addresses. And as a result, we started this kind of e-commerce marketing engine to learn from our customers, have great R&D, hopefully have a deeper relationship with them. And as we scale into retail, hopefully we have this group of folks that are excited for us to get into their local grocers. And we felt like, wait, the whole reason behind this, if you just heard my story a few minutes ago, was we wanted to be an innovative sparkling water company. And a couple of years in, I don't want hardcore fans to be tired of our flavors. So we started making more uh, innovation. Let's make new flavors every 60 days. A few of them did really well on the website. They sold out and we made more of them and they sold out right away. So we sent that data to a few retailers and this summer, uh, elderflower grapefruit and ginger Meyer lemon were two online flavors that became retail flavors. What's great about that is like our hardcore fans get to feel like, wait, we put that product into retail. Our, our love of it did that. The negative is, yeah, there are some retailers where we have seven SKUs and we have to figure out, is it the kind of retailer that can support seven Ouroboros SKUs or would it be better to suggest to the retailer, Hey, thank you for all this shelf space. We'd like to keep the same number of facings, but we want half of the SKUs removed. And, and it, we've, we've been taking it on a chain by chain basis. I'm no expert at <clears throat> SKU rationalization at all. I'll say, fortunately, we have some uh, sales members that worked at GT's Kombucha and Super Coffee and other beverage brands where SKU Rat was a big piece of their life. So they've been teaching me a lot in that regard. But it, it is certainly top of mind for us. If we want to be the most productive customer, the most productive um, product for each of our customers, such that they can think, okay, great, Ourobora turns and all the SKUs turn rather than thinking, oh, that's an overbloated section, let's cut a SKU. So I'll say the one piece of advice is it's always better to be proactive. I.e., If you know you have one loser SKU in a store, you might just lose that SKU. Instead, if you can go to the retailer and say, hey, can we do a swap? You get to keep the same number of SKUs, but you take a loser yeah. and turn it into a winner. Yeah, that's great advice. I was I was part of the big skew rationalization <laughs> process once upon a time as strategic, and it is it is tough. Um, it's painful. Yeah. It's painful. I, yeah. yeah. Um, awesome. One more question just to kind of close out here. So you just closed on a nice chunk of change. What are you kind of now most focused on um, over the next 12 months to kind of get Ourobora to the next level? So uh, thanks for asking that. No, we, we today are in about 5,000 stores. Most of them are natural stores. So think Whole Foods, Sprouts, Fresh Time in the Midwest, or uh, independent co-ops. I always joke, like if, if they have a pretty big bulk section, if you can buy oats or granola in a barrel, I hope that you can see Ourobora on the shelf. That's where we're at today in retail. Our goal is by this time next year, by Q4 of next year, you'll find us in a considerable number of conventional chains. Kroger banners, Albertson Safeway banners. We just rolled out in our first few Albertson Safeway regions. Um, maybe dipping our toe in the water in club and mass as well. That's that's our big focus for next year is prove that, hey, lavender, cucumber, sparkling water doesn't just sell well to the San Francisco Bay Area, Southern California, New York customer, but sells well in Texas and Colorado and Kansas and everywhere in between. So I, I'd say that's our next big focus. 
Um, included in that is, of course, building out the team, rationalizing SKUs where necessary, building out new SKUs for new retailers as they as they wish. So it's always something, but that I'd say increased distribution is the first thing on our plate and getting profitable is probably closely behind it. Awesome. Love it. Thanks so much for joining. One question we ask yeah. all our guests is just how they subscribe to wellness. So just few ways or a few things that you're focused on on a weekly basis to ensure you're living a healthy life while managing Ourobora. Yeah, this is a uh, cliche answer given what I sell, but I'll say hydration. I, even before selling water as a career, um, I am a big proponent of hydration. I think the vast majority of Americans are underhydrated. If the, the there's a great stat of like, if you don't have a water bottle on you at all times, you're probably not hydrated. Um, so you should be, yeah, peeing clear. I, I say that all the time. It's kind of nasty <laughs> yeah, to say, man. but like that's the best way to know. <laughs> yes, that's how you know. So luckily we have bodies that tell us if we're hydrated or not. So pay attention to yourself. And sparkling water is great. Ourobora is hydrating. It is not as hydrating as still water. So you need to be drinking both. Love it. Great answer. Um, appreciate the time. And where can our listeners learn a little more about Ourobora? Yeah, you can go, of course, to Ourobora.com. Um, probably our most active social is Instagram, Drink Ourobora. Um, or you can experience the product yourself at a Sprouts Whole Foods Thrive Market store near you. And let me know what you think. Awesome, Paul. Appreciate the time. Huge fan. And uh, congrats on everything. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.